This is Guns and Butter. As far as I'm concerned, the United Nations is an invading force at this point, and I've been working with them in Sudan and Ethiopia and have a really good position to say that. But the bottom line is, if you look at UN interventions, historically, they're always basically, it comes down to invasions which serve the powerful interests behind imperialism. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Keith Harmon Snow. Keith Snow is a journalist, a photojournalist, and a human rights and genocide investigator. He reported for Genocide Watch and Survivors' Rights International on Congo and Ethiopia. Keith Snow was a genocide consultant for a United Nations body in the Horn of Africa in 2005, reported from the International Criminal Tribunal on Rwanda in 2001, and provided expert testimony on genocide and covert operations in Africa for a special U.S. congressional hearing chaired by Representative Cynthia McKinney in 2001. He has worked in 17 countries in Africa and has received four Project Censored Awards for Africa Reportage. Today's show, Behind the Numbers, Plunder in Central Africa. Keith Snow, welcome. Thank you, Bonnie. You've done extensive reporting for many countries in Africa and are returning to the Democratic Republic of the Congo tomorrow on July 11th, 2006. There's much to cover. I'd like to start with the largest country in Africa, the Sudan, and specifically the Darfur region, which has been so much in the news lately. Mm -hmm. The situation there is much more complex than what is presented in the media. Could you describe the Sudan and the situation in the Darfur region? Sure. Pretty much, as you pointed out, it's, it's all distilled down in the media to a few basic facts, which you hear repeated over and over and over. Genocide is occurring. We need to stop it. Uh, the government of Sudan is this terrorist Islamic government, and we need to replace them. Some people have openly called for regime change, and others are just saying that it's really bad and we need to send in a humanitarian military, basically a military force, to provide humanitarian relief agencies the capacity to work. Bottom line is it seems to come down to competing business factions, and this is the same for the Congo, which we'll talk about later. So you've got powerful business factions, allied corporations allied with other corporations, allied with members in governments in different places, whether it's here or in Europe, in the United States, Canada, France, Belgium, Israel. And these different factions are competing for the resources in the Darfur region, and of course control of the entire country is one of the things that would like to be achieved by the U.S. foreign policy. And now, if control of the country means working with the government of Khartoum, which is, which is an Islamic government, then we will see that, and we'll have factions working with them, which is what basically the Bush gang has been doing. On the other hand, you've got a strong democratic faction in the United States, from the Democratic Party meaning, that seems to be pushing the concept of genocide, and their agenda seems to be to get access to these resources, which the Bush gang and its partners are controlling through working with the government of Khartoum. The Khartoum government is not a good, nice government. Bottom line is that they've done some nasty things, as any government that you can pretty much name has. And um, the situation in Sudan goes all the way back to the 1890s when Winston Churchill himself was reporting on the ground the first massacres, major massacres of one I was reading about today, for example, 50,000 people, mostly a couple thousand Sudanese with tribespeople with 
with guns, but most of those 50,000 had spears and and shields and bows and arrows kind of thing, sticks. And um, Gatling guns came in for the, with the British, British working with Egypt at the time, and they massacred at least 25 to 30,000 people in a single day. And a couple, I think it was 48 Brits and Egyptians were lost with 300 casualties. And they did that with Gatling guns. And this is the beginning, 1898. And today it's a struggle for basically the same resources in some extent and control of, you know, imperialist control of another country. And the major resources that I've identified in Sudan, at least and especially in Darfur, is petroleum, uranium, and something called gum Arabic. And uh, the Darfur region itself has been off the media uh, over the last 10 or 12 or 15 years, even though there's been a conflict going on which involved North and South Sudan. The Southern Sudan in 1983 or 84, this guy John Garong founded this rebel movement called the Sudan People's Liberation Army, the SPLA. John Garong led the SPLA up until just recently. He was just killed in a plane crash uh, over the past year. I'm not exactly sure of the date. And uh, it, was, it seems to be that he was somebody that had him assassinated because he had become too powerful and an agent of change in Sudan. John Garong and the Sudan People's Liberation Army started their insurrection against the government of Sudan about 1983, and that was just about the same time that this guy, Nimeri, who was the president of Sudan, he was a, totally a CIA operative. Even Howard French, a former New York Times bureau chief for Africa, journalist has said that Nimeri was CIA, you know, and he was in power until about 1985, and then at some point over the next few years, this Islamic government that's in power now took control, and as I say, the, the Islamic government, the, some business factions are willing to work with the Islamic government, while others are demonizing them, and, and the framework for understanding Darfur is to look at the resources and go back to the basic resources that are being fought over in the Darfur region and to look at the oil and the gum Arabic and the uranium, and to go back and to say, well, what happened previous to this thing that's called genocide in Darfur? And that takes you back again to the SPLA, the Sudan People's Liberation Army. Throughout the 1990s, the United States was arming and training and funding the uh, Sudan People's Liberation Army. Weapons were being shipped in through Uganda, and Uganda is a very close client state of the United States. So Uganda is a very close ally of the power structure, meaning multinational corporations are getting what they want from Uganda, from the government of Uganda. It's serving the interests of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and and Bechtel Corporation and oil corporations, which I'll get into Uganda more later. Um, but to begin with, the U.S. was shipping in weapons to its client state, Uganda, and has been doing that since at least the 1990s. To go back a little bit further, again, when the Sudan People's Liberation Army started their insurrection against the government, it was a rebel movement, but it was soon co-opted by the system, by the the multinational corporations and the, and the diplomats in power, some of which are still in power today in different places. And Sudan People's Liberation Army became a Christian-based movement against the Islamic government of Sudan over the 90s, very heavily impacted by Christian coalition interests, meaning right-wing Christian coalition from the United States. At the same time, you've got all of these Christian relief organizations working in southern Sudan, and they're all peddling the story over the last uh, 15 years of, of how the terrorist Islamic government in the north has been doing this, these atrocious things against the people in the south because the south wants autonomy and self-government. The bottom line is 
the South has been involved in this war against the North, and the South has been funded and armed by the United States, as I said. And the weapons have been shipped in over and over and over. The U.S. has established client states in the region, in Uganda, in Chad, in Ethiopia, in Eritrea, and Egypt, of course. And Now, all of these client states have different relationships to multinational corporations and to the different business factions and competing European, Anglo-American factions. But at the same time, Chad today and Ethiopia today are doing very much what the U.S. government wants in its campaign that people have come to know as the war on terror. So a lot of it revolves around demonizing, attacking, uh, destabilizing Islamic or Arabic governments or groups in the region of the Horn of Africa. And this extends, of course, throughout the rest of the world, but across northern Africa, Yemen, from Ethiopia, for example, there's a U.S. base of covert operations called, in a place called Herso, Ethiopia. And they're fanning out to Somalia, to Yemen, to Djibouti, to certainly to Darfur, to the Sudan region, and Ethiopia and Eritrea as well. And there's 2,000 U.S. covert operatives there, and this is openly advertised on a U.S. military website. But what they do and exactly how they're doing it is not advertised. The CIA has assets, they call them, in the region, which include unmanned aerospace vehicles, predator drones produced by General Atomics and Lockheed Martin that we're paying, you know, taxpayers are paying millions and millions and millions of dollars for. They're unmanned robotic killing machines, and they operate over the Horn of Africa. And uh, people today who are concerned about genocide or concerned about humanitarian suffering in, in the Darfur region, for example, Smith College students, have actually petitioned to get people to send letters to George Bush which say that he should be authorized to send in these predator drones to attack targets of his choosing. And, I mean, this is imperialism at the deepest level. The students don't get into the issues around who is competing for the resources. Interests continue to say that there's no oil found in Darfur. Uh, Smith College professor Eric Reeves, for example, is one of the premier advocates against the government, the current Islamic government of Sudan. And over the last six to seven years, he's been published over and over and over and over by the Boston Globe and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, etc. And he says that exactly what the, what the system wants, which is that this government of Sudan is a terrorist government. They're killing innocent civilians in the South, and they're trying to just, con- he even says they're trying to control the oil, and so it brings out this sense in people that he's actually telling the truth at a deeper level, which means if you're targeting the oil companies, you must be telling the truth. But the bottom line is the oil companies in Sudan uh, are a small select group. It doesn't include ExxonMobil, who wants the Sudanese oil. It doesn't include Texaco, for example, who wants the Sudanese oil. But it, it's a smaller subset, which, as I said, are one competing business faction that are competing against the other factions that don't have control or don't have access to the oil or the uranium or the gum Arabic. Going back to the Sudan People's Liberation Army throughout the 90s, this uh, escalating war continued until finally, sometime um, after 2000, maybe 2003 or 2002, there was a peace treaty signed between the North and the South. And suddenly there was a total shift in the geopolitical situation in Sudan because of this peace treaty. It's very similar to what happened in Rwanda in 1993, prior to the, what has become known as the Rwanda Genocide. And in Sudan, it happened in such a way that the peace treaty was signed, and then all this pressure was put on the government of Sudan, the Khartoum government, the Islamic government, to 
to sign this peace treaty, and they were demonized over and over and over, always the bad guy, never anybody else in this war. It's just supposedly this government of Khartoum having a war against innocent people. Never talks about the covert operations by the U.S. or Israel or France or whoever's involved there. Uh, the weapons coming in from Chad or the weapons coming in from Uganda, the Ugandan forces themselves that are involved in southern Sudan, and all the mining and all the petroleum. This stuff just doesn't come into it. It's, it's always distilled to this simple story about Islam versus Christianity, Islam versus, versus Judaism at this point as well. It's become a very leveraging point for, for Jews in this country to, to hear that the Islamic government of Sudan is targeting or complaining about how it's a big Jewish conspiracy to overthrow the government of Sudan, when in fact there's a lot of truth to that, which we could get into by looking at the different organizations behind this huge propaganda front on Darfur, which is, again, distilled to genocide in Darfur or the Islamic regime being a terrorist regime that needs to be changed. So it's really very much a part of this overall larger war on terror that is what the U.S. government has established with its allies, of course, NATO allies or Britain or England or whatever, to, um, to basically seize control or leverage further control over countries that aren't doing what the system wants, that have their own competing business factions which may be more allied to India or allied to China or aligned with Russia or aligned with any other country, Malaysia. But it all comes down in the end to Western interests which are very much a part of the picture, no matter whether you're looking at the Chinese oil companies. For example, one Malaysian oil company has, Petronas, has a Swedish director on a board of directors. It's very much not about an Oriental company versus a Western company. It's, it's become so supranational at this point that, that, again, it comes back to these competing business factions, and it's impossible to figure out sometimes what the competing business factions are. You can get glimpses of them here and there. I'm speaking with journalist and human rights investigator Keith Snow. Today's show, Behind the Numbers, Plunder in Central Africa. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. If we go back to this framework, the framework of it being Christianity versus Islam, which is very much true, and also genocide is occurring in Darfur, it goes right to the Center for Security Policy, this right-wing, ultra-right-wing think tank in the United States, which you don't really see mentioned anywhere, ever, regardless of whether it's about Darfur, Sudan, or about missile defense and the Star Wars program. And the Center for Security Policy is very much the Star Wars and the missile defense program. Look on their board of directors, and it includes, they have their, uh, this thing called the National Security Advisory Council that advises the national security infrastructure in the United States. And that includes on, the, on this Security Council, this guy, Dr. Edward Teller, who some people refer to as Dr. Strangelove himself because of some of his just outrageous ideas that going back as, as early as the 1960s into what we should do with nuclear weapons and nuclear technology. And another guy is Frank Gaffney Jr., who's very much affiliated with the Christian Coalition. And uh, both of these guys have pushed this Pentagon right-wing missile defense programs that are raising our taxes, you know, significantly. Most people's taxes, I don't pay. But uh, the, the Center for Security Policy is funded by Boeing, TRW, General Dynamics, Rockwell International, Northrop Grumman, and Lockheed Martin at the top of the list. There's six Lockheed Martin executives on the board of the Center for Security Policy, and this guy, Frank Gaffney, Jr., 
heads something called the Coalition to Protect Americans Now. It's a media advocacy group that organizes TV ads, for example, promoting Star Wars and ballistic missile defense. And Helen Caldicott has written about this in her book, and, it, and it, she notes that one of the ads depicts visions of babies in their cradles and children playing baseball with missiles falling from the sky in a caption that says, where will you be when the missiles are launched? So the Center for Security Policy is like the nerve center of the Star Wars lobby, and it's very much putting out this regime change or genocide agenda against Sudan. And the way that they're doing it is there's a, a website they have called divest, divestterror.org, and it shows this list of companies that need to be divested from in Sudan because they're working with, supposedly, you know, they're part of the terrorist infrastructure that's, you know, ultimately attacking our very way of life in America, when really it's about just getting control of more resources and, and controlling more interests around the world. This divestterror.org lists 12 companies, and they're the same 12 companies, for example, that Dr. Eric Reeves, the Smith College professor, has gotten colleges to divest from. For example, Amherst College has divested their pension funds from these 12 companies, which are the same 12 companies that the Center for Security Policy is calling people to divest from. They're not any big companies from the United States. None. Not a single one. You won't find Lockheed Martin. You won't find any of the ones behind the Center for Security Policy. You'll find some kind of obscure, uh, more obscure companies and Talisman Energy, which is from Canada, which is associated with this guy, uh, Adolf Lundin. He's very close with the Bush family. But anyway, Talisman has oil operations all over Africa, in the Congo, other places, and it's, it may hurt them in the short run and in a small scale, but when the divest terror and the Center for Security Policy goes after these 12 companies, in the greater scheme of things, it's much more important to open up, pave the way for Exxon Mobil and Texaco, for example, and other oil companies, even Petronas, maybe, and, and, uh, and the Chinese oil companies, because, as I say, some factions are working with them. And Eric Reeves is, is the guy that's published everywhere on Darfur, Sudan, and he says anything he wants, basically, and nobody ever challenges him because he's saying that, you know, this government is killing off hundreds of thousands of people and creating millions and millions of refugees. He, and he's a Smith College professor. He's self-taught about Sudan. He's been speaking about Sudan for six or seven years, and he, uh, he tar targets the same companies, as I said, and he got Amherst College for one to divest from them. And... Um, Reeves has said things that are very significant in the recent past. One, there's no oil of significance in Darfur. He says this repeatedly. Two, the weapons that come into the Darfur region, into Sudan in general, come from China and from Libya. But the bottom line is these are huge deceptions. The, the oil map that I have from the petroleum industry shows that the Darfur region is almost one vast concession. It's divided up in one small one and one large one, but... There's a gigantic concession that they're fighting over in Darfur. As well, in northern Sudan, there's three or four major concessions that are never mentioned or shown on any websites that talk about this horrible situation in Sudan. They show the oil in the south, and they talk about the companies that I've mentioned, which are pretty obscure, or it's Petronas or the Chinese National Petroleum Company. But they don't talk about the interests that are competing for that oil, and they don't talk about the oil in northern Sudan. And that's very significant, because if you look at that, you, you can come to a conclusion that this is what the fighting is all about. It's not about genocide, and it's not about hundreds of thousands of people dying. And the bottom line is that there's a huge humanitarian crisis going on in Darfur. That's absolutely true, and it's being manipulated by these powerful factions, including senators from the United States. For example, recently, one senator just came out, Senator Sam Brownback, and 
and uh, Robert Menendez, these two senators, came out with this amendment, which has just been signed, which says that we should send $60 million to fund a U.N. peacekeeping mission in the Darfur region. Well, in the same article that I found, it was a pretty obscure website, but it reported that the Republican opponent of this guy, Menendez, who's a Democrat, says that Menendez has taken significant campaign contributions from the companies that are the importers of gum Arabic. Now, I mentioned gum Arabic, and I mentioned uranium, and I mentioned oil. In oil, I've talked about a little bit more extensively. Gum Arabic is essential for Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola. It's used in just about every single sweet kind of beverage that you can find on the market. Coke and Pepsi totally rely on gum Arabic. And two-thirds of the world's gum Arabic is found in Darfur. And the gum Arabic found in Darfur is the best quality gum Arabic in the world. It's very significant. And Pfizer and Bristol-Myers Squibb and these other huge Merck pharmaceutical companies also rely on gum Arabic for some of their products. So the gum Arabic thing is a big deal when we talk about what's going on in Darfur, but it's hardly ever mentioned. And the third thing was uranium. Israel apparently is after the uranium there for its own nuclear, nuclear weapons complex. So those three natural resources are really significant. So, Keith, the, the Islamic government in Khartoum in the north of the Sudan is involved in a civil war with rebels from the south of Sudan whom I understand are being funded by the United States and uh, business interests. And there's an actual civil war going on in the Sudan in which, what, the Darfur region is caught in the middle of this? Well, uh, Eric Reeves, this expert on Sudan, he would say, there's no war in the South. The war's over. They signed a peace treaty. It has nothing to do with the South. And nothing, frankly, could be further from the truth. The civil war raged between the North and the South from 1983 onwards, and throughout the 90s it escalated as the U.S. continued to pump in weapons and the SPLA, which was supported by the United States, the Sudan People's Liberation Army, and supported by Uganda and supported by Ethiopia, the SPLA committed its own atrocities widely, and these are almost never reported. And meanwhile, weapons are being shipped in by Christian humanitarian relief organizations. One of the most notable, which was caught red-handed, was the Norwegian People's Aid, and UN people that I worked with in Ethiopia said openly, the Norwegian People's Aid, we laugh about that. Everybody calls it Norwegian People's Army because they're shipping in weapons. Now, it's also been suggested, or there's evidence that says that other Christian humanitarian aid organizations from the West are also shipping in weapons, but that's not as well documented. So the bottom line is, yes, there was a civil war going on throughout the 80s and 90s. It escalated into 2002. And then a peace treaty was signed between the South and the North, the rebels in the South, the Sudan People's Liberation Army, and the Islamic government. And then, suddenly, this thing exploded in Darfur. And Eric Reeves will say it doesn't involve the SPLA, and it doesn't involve the rebels from the South, and it's not about the war in the South. And that's just a complete lie. It's a deception. Because the SPLA is very closely aligned with some of the rebel groups that are operating in Darfur today. There's at least, it seems like, I'm familiar with at least three big rebel groups working and fighting in Darfur, as well as the so-called Janjaweed, the Arab militias on camels or on horses that come in and raid villages. Now, I was told recently by a Sudan expert that the Janjaweed actually indiscriminately targets people. It doesn't, it's not working for the government in some cases any more than it's working for the rebels or for themselves. In fact, they're often just looting and pillaging because they know they can get away with it. It's not a campaign of genocide, and it's not a campaign which targets 
or serves any political interest. But, and the Darfur region is very much alive with all these factions that are committing atrocities, crimes against humanity, and acts of genocide. And see, the whole thing comes down to, with the bipartisan division of power in the United States, the Democratic versus the Republican aspects of this conflict in Sudan, you've got the Democrats screaming genocide, and the Republican aspect is they're working with the Khartoum government, as I said. And when you talk about genocide in Sudan, it's always in this narrow definition of what constitutes genocide. What I mean by that is that, that um, there's a, a politic, political nature to the use of the word genocide, which revolves around targeting or demonizing those people that are not serving the interests of powerful groups and letting other groups that are also committing you know, war crimes and crimes against humanity and acts of genocide, they're letting other groups get away with it without ever mentioning them. For example, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International don't, to the extent that's required, they don't point out which other groups are committing atrocities in some of these places. And when I say some of these places, I mean Darfur, Rwanda, Uganda, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Chad, Congo, for example. So the, the piece that came along in between the South and the North in 2002 or 2003, suddenly the, the violence shifted to the Darfur region, and it seems to me that that's because these powerful factions realized that with the peace treaty that was signed, they weren't going to get control of the resources that they wanted. So they shifted the, the focus to this area of which is known as Darfur. And so now you've got this huge you can call it civil war, but it's real, I call it a proxy war involving all of these factions from Israel, the United States, Britain, France, Belgium, Germany, sending in military or supporting in one way or another military factions, militias, that are then you know, completely described in the media as, as African or Islamic in, in nature. And only the Islamic government is usually in the Jesuit or committing the atrocities. And so it's reduced to that level again. Meanwhile, across the border in Chad, there's bases of U.S. military operations. ExxonMobil is funding Save the Children. Save the Children is building a road into the border region near Darfur, right across Chad. And uh, this road funded by ExxonMobil and built by Save the Children is supposedly for humanitarian relief access, but the bottom line is that ExxonMobil in the end is going to be able to move right in on Darfur's oil. It's not just humanitarian relief. The people screaming about the need to get these humanitarian organizations in there to, to help people or to make sure that they're not attacked by different factions, and they've been attacked by all factions, including factions supported by the United States, but nobody will report that piece. It sounds to me like what you're saying is that there are powerful business interests supporting both sides, supporting both the government in Khartoum and also the rebels, right. and that these business interests from the United States and other Western countries are supporting both sides. Is the whole point to try and destabilize the entire country so that business interests can take over? Yeah, I would say so. And, you know, the, the business interests are fighting amongst themselves. So you may have a faction that includes that's more closely aligned to the New York Times, for example, so the New York Times will run stories that are favorable to that faction. And that faction probably includes J.P. Morgan and uh, Coca-Cola and some oil company like ExxonMobil and humanitarian organization, which is just another big company at this point, like Save the Children. It's a big company. It's big companies with big white people salaries, with big SUVs, and it's involved in this structural violence. 
And then you might have factions which are more closely aligned with China, which include the China National Petroleum Company or the um, Petronas, the Malaysian oil company. But those, again, will have connections to powerful institutions in the United States, including PR firms, including um, those firms that do the auditing, like KPMG or Coopers and Librand, you know, and, and including banks. And these different factions are competing for the resources in, in the Darfur and all of Sudan, basically. But right now it's really coming down to the fighting being over Darfur itself. And I think the reason that it's partly over Darfur is because, again, there's, there's this accessibility from Chad, which makes it favorable to the United States, for example, to send in forces, either covert operations, openly, or, or clandestinely, rather, or openly being militias that are completely supported by the United States. So, yes, it comes down to competing business interests. And then, you, so that's why you have some senators and some Democratic congresspeople or Republican congresspeople taking different positions on what's going on in Darfur, and that's why nobody will really come out and call it genocide the way that you would like to think a just and true world would do if there was really such a thing occurring. And again, it doesn't mean that there aren't an incredibly large number of people, completely disenfranchised human beings, who have the misfortune of having been born on this land that we're all fighting over, you know. There's a lot of people involved who are stuck in the middle of this horrible conflict who are being manipulated. They're just pawns. And no one, you know, when George Clooney from Hollywood goes over there and makes this big deal out of it, you know, it's, it's not like he really, as far as I'm concerned, really cares too much about the people. It's more a political grandstanding kind of thing because you can connect the Pentagon directly to the Hollywood interest involved in some of the films in these places, which include Rwanda and what's coming out on Sudan now. So, I'm speaking with journalist and human rights investigator Keith Snow. Today's show, Behind the Numbers, Plunder in Central Africa. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. With regard to the media attention, the fundraisers, the rallies to save Darfur by politicians and activists calling for a humanitarian intervention, what are the inherent dangers of a United Nations or a U.S. intervention? Is this war propaganda presented as a humanitarian effort? Yeah, absolutely. It's manipulating the fears or the and the beliefs and the good hearts of people in the United States, good, you know, good patriotic Americans who really believe in democracy and truth and freedom and all that stuff. It's manipulating that on the deepest level so that we're, you know, we're put in a position of believing that we need to stop this horrible these horrible atrocities, which is what I think everybody wants, you know, with the exception of the powerful business interests that we're talking about and and, and and not having any agency to be able to do anything about it. I mean, what can I, as an individual person, do except stand up with everybody else and rally against George Bush, who isn't taking a strong enough stand? And so Smith College students have organized, and, and they're, they're asking you to send letters to George Bush, demanding that he send in the unmanned aerospace vehicles, demanding that he send in U.S. forces. The fact is, intervention isn't what's required. Intervention is the very problem. It's the intervention and destabilization that's going on now and has been going on for over a decade and a half, that that's the problem. It's like a fire department who pours gasoline on the fire when no one's looking, pours gasoline on something, lights the fire, and then stands back and yells, fire, fire, and expects to be sent in. That's exactly what's going on in the United States with respect to genocide. And all of these rallies, the big rally in Washington, for example, religious Christian coalition and Jewish religious leaders at the highest levels met with George Bush prior to that rally. It was exactly what George Bush wanted. 
it wasn't the opposite. It wasn't like, you know, protests against Bush not doing something. It was like, gives him exactly what he needs to be able to authorize further military destabilization, which means, you know, basically open invasion, whether it's NATO or the United Nations. And as far as I'm concerned, the United Nations is an invading force at this point. And I've been working with them in Sudan and Ethiopia and have a really good position to say that. But the bottom line is, if you look at U.N. interventions, historically, they're always, basically, it comes down to invasions which serve the powerful interests behind imperialism. And you could give examples today of Haiti, where the U.N. has committed incredible atrocities and, and is very much at this, at this moment. Similarly, in Congo, the U.N. intervention is serving, it's basically clearing the ground for the multinationals to be able to operate more freely. I often have said and, and in my writings and say again that when the war in Congo stops, then the devastation will so begin on a much deeper level. And the U.N. interests in Ethiopia, for example, the U.N., the Ethiopian government is a terrorist government, you know, by any sense of the word at this point, committing incredible atrocities against its own people in the South. That's where I was sent in to investigate genocide against these people, the Anuak people. And the UN mission in, in Ethiopia and Eritrea serves powerful interests, which aren't about peace, unless it's peace which establishes the status quo for these powerful corporations or certain factions. And there's always a trade-off. When the U.N. went into Rwanda, for example, and the U.N. assistance mission, it was called U.N. Amir, in Rwanda in 1994 and 93, they paved the way for the Rwandan Patriotic Front to invade and take over the country. And what happened in 1994 in Rwanda was a coup d'etat. Not well, a genocide, it was a coup d'etat. The United States' interests took over the country from a powerful French-controlled government of General Yuvenal Habyarimana. And in the course of that, the U.N. mission, U.N. Amir mission general that was in charge, General Romeo Dallaire, who, of course, most people have heard of today because of his so-called stance on how we should have intervened more seriously and didn't in Rwanda, Dallaire actually closed one half of the runway in Kigali, the main airport, capital city airport, so that the plane carrying the president of Rwanda and the president of Burundi at the time would have to approach on the side where it was going to be shot down. And then it was shot down. So the U.N. was directly involved in the double assassination of two presidents on April 6, 1994. Instead, it was described as, you know, the Hutus did, even Hotel Rwanda, the movie, the Hutus did the killing, they shot the plane down, and then they committed this huge genocide against 800,000 to a million people. That's just not true. There's nothing in that statement that's true. So in Darfur, you've got Janjaweed, this name, Arabs on horses, genocide against you know, hundreds of thousands of people and millions of people committed as refugees, some of which is true in terms of the numbers. And in Rwanda, you had Hutus killing Tutsis, interahamwe, those who killed together. This language and these words that are used are chosen and, and manipulated and amplified over and over and over to create in the public mind a sense of fear about some group that needs to be stopped. And it's the Janjaweed, and it's the interahamwe in Rwanda and, and Congo, and it's the Lord's Resistance Army, the LRA, in Uganda today who is demonized. And these are just different military factions connected to different groups that don't serve the war on terror. They don't serve the interests of the IMF necessarily. They may be more closely aligned with Libya, or they may be more closely aligned with South Africa or with China. 
Well, let's talk about Rwanda and Uganda and their involvement in both the Sudan to the north and the Congo to the south. Both Rwanda and Uganda are much smaller than either Sudan or Congo. Geographically, I guess they're located roughly between the Sudan and the Congo. Now, rebel groups from both of Rwanda and Uganda were funded by the United States to successfully take over their respective countries, Paul Kagame in Rwanda and Museveni in Uganda. Is that right? Absolutely. Just about the same time as the Sudan People's Liberation Army was born in southern Sudan, which was 1983, um, Yoweri Museveni and the powerful military faction army that he ran in Uganda took control of that country by military force. It was a, a bloody coup. And they, of course, demonized this guy Idi Amin, who everybody knows. There's a perfect example of the propaganda front that created this huge public consciousness about terrorism in Africa and tribalism in Africa. Idi Amin puts heads in his refrigerator and eats them later, you know, that kind of thing. And Amin just stopped serving the interests of the power structure, and so they had to get rid of him, just like they want to get rid of Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe today. And just like the U.S. wanted to get rid of Juvenal Habyarimana, the president of Rwanda, who was in power for almost, I think it was almost 30 years, sometime in the 70s until he was assassinated on April 6, 1994. So in Uganda, in 1984, Yoweri Museveni seized control of the country. And that began what we know today as the Uganda, which is supposedly, once, once was called the Pearl of Africa by the Brits, and today it's the U.S. has some similar name for it, because Museveni has done exactly what the power structure wants in terms of supporting the World Bank and the IMF and the corporations, which are after the oil and the gold and the different resources in the region, as well as tourism, which is a huge, huge interest and powerful institution in Central as well as Eastern Africa, for example, and all the animals and the gorillas and the wildebeest. And so Uganda, the U.S. base of power, is an Anglo-American, it's U.S.-U.K., base of power in Central Africa really was born in Uganda, as we know it today, anyway, with Yoweri Museveni. Now, Yoweri Museveni, the president of Uganda today, he's been in power, he's ruled with an iron fist. Most of the horrible things that he's done, that his government has done, in South Sudan, in Uganda, in Rwanda, in Congo, are never reported, absolutely never reported. And the Ugandan military machine has committed far more atrocities than any of these little rebel groups that you often read about, like the Lord's Resistance Army, who's been publicized widely in, in the Condé Nast group publications like Vanity Fair. So Museveni seized control in, in 84. John Garong with the Sudan People's Army started his partnership with Museveni about the same time and started moving against the northern Sudan region. Paul Kagame, the current president of Rwanda, was the director of military intelligence for Yoweri Museveni. Kagame had never been in Rwanda. He was, he's always described as a refugee forced out of his homeland. And they draw all these parallels to the Jews and the Tutsis, which Paul Kagame is, have become the Jews of Africa. So Paul Kagame, the director of military intelligence for President Yoweri Museveni in Uganda in 1984, began to start to mobilize forces against the government of Rwanda. This involved a guy named Roger Winter, who today is the head of USAID in Sudan. And Roger Winter was part of something called the U.S. Committee for Refugees. And in 1987, he began organizing 
in Washington, in the United States, he began organizing the Tutsi diaspora from Rwanda to take over that country. And they started producing publications which started talking about, what are we waiting for, genocide? This is 1987, before anything had been uttered about genocide in Rwanda. So Museveni seizes control in 84. He starts to consolidate power from 84 to 90, 1991. That's about the same time that I first set foot in the area in, in, in Uganda and in Rwanda. And in 1990, Paul Kagame, who graduated from, who, who, was a, who was, I don't know if he graduated, but he was at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. He was trained by the Pentagon at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas Military College. He launched, he was part of an insurrection that started to begin the civil war to take out the government of Rwanda at the time. And again, that was this French-supported juvenile Habi Ramana, who eventually was assassinated by CIA, Rwandan Patriotic Front, Paul Kagame, U.S. military interests on April 6, 1994, the day that is counted as the beginning of the Rwanda genocide. So in 1990, Paul Kagame launches this war from Uganda. It's supported by the government of Uganda, by the Pentagon. It's never denounced. It's a total violation of international sovereignty and international law at every level, and it's never denounced. Instead, you see a campaign that starts which denounces the government of Rwanda for committing human rights atrocities against this invading rebel army, which is never described that way. And that's pretty much the framework that you see in the movie Hotel Rwanda, where it's the government of Rwanda, the Hutus, that do all this killing, according to the movie. And then in the end, this elite, clean, well-organized force comes in and saves everybody and stops the genocide. And that's, of course, the Paul Kagame faction, the Rwandan Patriotic Front. The real facts of the matter are that in 1990, the Rwandan Patriotic Front began this invasion of Rwanda, immediately took over huge sections of the northern part of Rwanda in violation of all these international laws. Africa writes, and this guy Alex DeWall began reporting about how awful the situation was and how the government of Rwanda, not the rebels who were invading, not Paul Kagame, how the government of Rwanda was committing these atrocities which were verging on genocide. And this campaign to depict the government of Rwanda as committing genocide began around 1992. So from 1990 until April 6, 1994, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, headed by Paul Kagame, again, a Pentagon Fort Leavenworth graduate or, or student, continued this incursion into Rwanda, seizing more and more land, seizing more and more control, killing more and more people, forcing refugee people, internally displaced people, by the tens and hundreds of thousands to flee that northern part of Rwanda into the center and into the south of Rwanda and into other countries, even into, into the Congo. And Human Rights Watch and Africa Rights, especially Africa Rights from the UK and this guy Alex DeWall, they started screaming genocide especially around 1993, when, again, a peace treaty was signed between the rebels, just like in Sudan, a peace treaty was signed between the rebels and between the government, but it wasn't what the system wanted, it wasn't what the Pentagon wanted, and so they continued to push the agenda through the Rwandan Patriotic Front to basically take over the entire country. And then they would claim that the government of juvenile Javier Romana, the guy who was assassinated, was the one that was violating the peace treaty, when in fact it was the other way around. And the government of Javier Amana had some French support at one point. They, the French even dropped 500 paratroopers in 1990 to fight against this U.S. military-supported invasion. And by 1993, the, the forces were so strong against the government of Rwanda that France could no longer openly send in either Israeli or French military 
paratroopers. And so they had to kind of start, they had, the government of Rwanda had to give up more and more and more power, which is what's happening in Sudan today. The government of Sudan, the Khartoum government, has been forced over the last 15 years to give up more and more and more power. They're doing some awful things. The Rwandan government did some awful things, but they're always demonized in great disproportion to the role that the rebels, for example, play and what the rebels are doing, like the Rwandan Patriotic Front. I'm speaking with journalist and human rights investigator Keith Snow. Today's show, Behind the Numbers, Plunder in Central Africa. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You've got U.S. Pentagon advisors, for example, working on the ground in Rwanda and Uganda in the 1993-94 era. And then the plane is shot down, carrying the two presidents of Rwanda and Burundi, and the top general from Rwanda at the same time was on the plane, and he was killed. And Mobutu, the president in Zaire, who had been put in by the CIA in effectively 1965-1967, and had ruled from 65 or 67 until 1997 when he was unseated, he was supposed to be on the same airplane that that, uh, was shot down, again, by CIA or U.S. Pentagon interest by the RPF, the Rwandan Patriotic Front. He was supposed to be on that plane, but he got wind of it, and he didn't take the plane that day. So you would have had three presidents, a triple assassination, but Mobutu got out of there. And apparently he didn't warn his friend, juvenile Javier Ramana, and Javier Ramana ended up getting killed. And then began the so-called Rwanda genocide. And just like in Darfur, you've got this standard media line, genocide, Janjaweed on horses. In Rwanda, everyone came to know as genocide, Hutus killing Tutsis. Now, even some professors from a couple colleges in North Carolina, for example, or Duke University, I'm not sure, but they've done some research which definitively showed that there weren't that many people in Rwanda to be killed. There weren't that many Tutsis in Rwanda who could have died at the time. The standard media reframe on Rwanda is Hutus killed Tutsis. 800,000 to 1.2 million Tutsis were killed in 100 days. And this is repeated everywhere, over and over and over. And the biggest propagandists who are selling this line are Philip Gurevich, whose book was, We Regret to Inform You That Tomorrow Our Families Will Be Killed, and Samantha Power. She won the Pulitzer Prize for her book, America in the Age of Genocide, A Problem from Hell. And indeed, Samantha Power is a problem from hell because she doesn't ever get into the covert operations and the manipulation behind the scenes. I mentioned that guy, Roger Winter, from USAID, who's now the most powerful USAID person in Sudan. He was the U.S. Committee of Refugees director at the time, I think, a director is, I think, the position he had in Washington. And he, as I said, he started to organize this propaganda, which started to peddle the idea that the Rwandan government was committing genocide against these poor, innocent Tutsis. And then Gurevich started to sell the idea of the Jews of Africa. The Tutsis are the Jews of Africa, People without a homeland, a displaced people, you know, their genocide was committed against them. And this was, Gurevich is one of the biggest writers for the New Yorker magazine. So this thesis and this propaganda front was pushed over and over and over in the New Yorker by Philip Gurevich. And, and Powers, I understand, teaches at Harvard. Powers was the director of the Carr Center for Human Rights, which I believe she may have even been the co-founder. And I think that arose at Harvard in the Harvard Kennedy School of Government around 1990 or 1998 or 2000, somewhere in that time frame, Samantha Power became, I think, co-founded this thing and, and started working on it, along with, I think, Michael Ignatiev. He's also one of the big directors there, who, again, pushes this line about genocide, 
and the genocides that have been committed. And I can throw out Yugoslavia, and I can throw out Rwanda as two perfect examples of huge propaganda fronts claiming genocide, which don't ever go into the, the relationship between the U.S. covert military support for various factions on the ground. And again, going back to the Rwanda situation, it's always claimed Sam Samantha Power and Philip Gurevich, almost I challenge anyone, almost anywhere you'll see the same thing. At least 500,000 and somewhere between 800,000 to 1.2 million Tutsis were killed, or people were killed, mostly Tutsis. The bottom line is there was probably somewhere in the range, this is based on various experts who've done different studies, including these two professors, probably somewhere in the range of 200 to 400,000 people killed. Most of the people killed were not Tutsis, in fact, but many were Hutus. There were certainly a large number of Tutsis, but it's even suggested by these two professors that most of the people killed were, were Hutus, not Tutsis. So if the Hutus were committing genocide, why were they killing their own people? Also, the Hotel Rwanda thing sets up this whole Hotel Mille de Collines, which is one of the biggest hotels in, in the capital city of Kigala, as the center for the movie and how this big drama went down at the Hotel de Mille Collines. But almost every fact in that movie, the movie is peddled as a true story, almost every fact that's forward in that movie and almost every dramatic event that you see depicted in the movie is not true. Almost everything. The hotel itself was full of both Tutsis and Hutus. It was protected by the Hutu government. It wasn't a safe haven for Tutsis that was then targeted by the Interhamway and protected by the UN by General Dallaire, who in the film is played by Nick Nolte and is only a colonel. It was quite the opposite. It was protected by the Hutu government. It had Hutus in it. There was a wedding of some of the most powerful factions, Hutus and Tutsis at the time, was held in the hotel at the, in the midst of this huge conflict going on outside the, the hotel's walls where people were being shelled, I mean shelling and, and massacres and firebombing from surface-to-air missiles from helicopters. And this is the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the RPF, the Paul Kagame was leading. He was then Major General. They were committing most of these atrocities, and the government of Rwanda was pretty much backed into a hole and fighting for its very survival. And, and they did go out, and they targeted plenty of Tutsis, and they targeted people that were, they knew were, were affiliated with the Rwandan Patriotic Front. There were fundraising campaigns throughout the, the early 1990s all over Rwanda, where people were collecting money for the Tutsi effort, the Rwandan Patriotic Front effort, when they were whipping up the propaganda, just like it's claimed that the government of Sudan is whipping up propaganda now, but I see it quite the opposite. It's this government that's whipping up the propaganda. When the propaganda was whipped up in Rwanda about how the Tutsis were trying to take over and the, the Hutus were creating all this genocidal hatred propaganda, in fact, the Tutsi side, the RPF, was producing its own newspapers, which were equally hostile and equally, they should also be tried for genocide if anybody's going to be tried for genocide. And as I said, the leader, General Romeo Dallaire, who is now considered, you know, this hero about the situation in Rwanda because he's always saying we should have done more, we should have done more to stop it, as opposed to what he was doing on the ground, which was making it happen. And he helped shut down the runway that allowed the plane to be shut down. And these documents have been released at the International Criminal Tribunal on Rwanda. And, of course, the International Criminal Tribunal on Rwanda and the International Criminal Tribunal on Yugoslavia, these are just huge machines serving the same thing that happened as happened at Nuremberg, which is the worst offenders are let go, whether they're on the Tutsi side or on the Hutu side or whether they're on the from the U.S. military, which was also involved in Rwanda, or the Belgians, which were also involved in Rwanda. Some of the worst 
war criminals are let go, as at Nuremberg. They were brought into the, into the U.S. military establishment, into NASA. Werner von Braun and the guys who created the, the V-1 and the V-2 rockets were brought into the Space Administration. And the other Nazis were brought into the, the medical establishment, and some were brought into the intelligence community. And it's the same thing with Rwanda. It's not about Hutus killing Tutsis. It was about powerful business factions on the ground trying to control Rwanda's interests. And there it was coffee and tea and Lake Kivu, which is, which is the lake which straddles the border between Rwanda and Congo, at the time of the conflict was called Zaire under Mobutu. Lake Kivu is one gigantic natural gas field that's been coveted by the corporations for years, but they haven't been able to get at it. And similarly, before I forget, the border between Uganda and Congo, Lake Mobutu, Lake Albert, is, uh, it was called Lake Albert under the British, and then Lake Mobutu under Mobutu. Lake Mobutu has got huge oil reserves underneath. I've had oil executives working in Uganda tell me that it's more oil than, than is in all of Saudi Arabia. I don't believe that, but I think there's a very significant amount of oil there. And uh, so back in Rwanda, they were fighting for the coffee, the tea plantations, fighting for the very control of the government, because Rwanda is an incredibly small but incredibly pivotal position between Tanzania and Uganda and the vast Congo to the west. Once the United States established control over Rwanda, which occurred in those so-called 100 days of 1994, all these refugees fled into the Congo, which was then called Zaire, and Rwanda was used as the base to launch this huge war against the Congo, against Zaire, to take out Mobutu, to unseat, to destabilize, to remove the powerful forces that kept his Mobutu's machine operating. And then you start to say again, well, which factions were allied with Mobutu versus which factions were not? Which factions were allied, are allied with the Rwandan Patriotic Front and which factions are not? So it's Uganda and Rwanda invaded the Congo in 1996. Mobutu was overthrown and died of, he died of cancer immediately after he fled the country. And that was in 19, late in 1997. And Mobutu was overthrown because Rwanda and Uganda with Israeli and U.S. and Belgian and U.K. support, launched this huge invasion of Zaire from Rwanda and from Uganda. Now, U.S. military personnel were seen driving tanks. These are white guys driving tanks in southern Rwanda in 1995 in preparation for the invasion. In preparation for the invasion of Zaire, at the same time, U.S. Corporations set up military operations in Rwanda and Uganda. They set up listening stations. They set up communications equipment in the Ruwenzori Mountains between Uganda and between Congo. And they set up a huge communications space on Ijwe Island, which is on Lake Kivu, which I mentioned is just one big natural gas field. And Lake Kivu, the listening island, was just on the Rwandan side of the border from Zaire, and these things, this is very well documented by people that I've talked to now, that this was all U.S. military Pentagon stuff, not even covert operations. They were openly U.S. soldiers who were working in Rwanda and Uganda doing this at the time. I've been speaking with journalist, photojournalist, and human rights and genocide investigator Keith Harmon Snow. We'll continue our discussion of Congo in a future program. Today's show, Behind the Numbers, Plunder in Central Africa. 
In addition to working as a genocide consultant for a United Nations body in the Horn of Africa in 2005, Keith Snow researched and reported for Genocide Watch and Survivors' Rights International on Congo and Ethiopia. He is a four-time Project Censored Award winner for Reportage on Africa. Keith Snow is Secretary of Healthy Tomorrow, working to stop female genital mutilation in Mali. He is an electrical engineer and worked for GE Aerospace Electronics Laboratories on classified programs in the 1980s. Keith Snow's essays and journalism, including Hotel Rwanda, Hollywood, and the Holocaust in Central Africa, are posted at his website at www.allthingspass.com. That's allthingspass.com. You can contact Keith Snow by email at keith.harman.snow at gmail.com. That's keith.harmon.snow at gmail.com. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Trying to steal your life.